0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Rational Security: The Float Like a Tweet, Sting Like a Ray Edition. I'm your host Shane Harris, slightly less outraged Washington DC pedestrian. I'm not sure if people are doing a better job shoveling their sidewalks this week or if my snow-shaming campaign has worked. Maybe the snow's just melting. It's a little warmer here this week.
2: Well, I want to point out that I had a serious black ice problem on my walk this week. Did you? And um, So now
1: you feel the pain.
2: Well, I, because the melting during the day would flood the the, the the sidewalk, and then every evening it would freeze. And so uh, we had um, your snow-shaming uh, campaign has had a big effect on me. I meticulously every morning, uh, salted that thinking that I did not want you to take a picture of my house. Good it's for no you, Because so I would. Because yeah, I, I know would, you. I you, were, you, you were watching. I would do it. I was
1: watching you. Um, that, of course, is Ben Wittes, my friend and, uh, guest as always. Uh, Ben also, extemporaneous speaker extraordinaire. His Constitution Day speech at the NSA, which he gave last September. Finally released, and it was posted last week on the Lawfare podcast. And you didn't have any notes for that speech;
2: you just uh, riffed, right? You no, know, that was that was. Uh, I may have jotted a few things down, few but, things. but but, it, but it was it was a very exploratory speech in front of a very unusual audience, and I kind of wanted to look that workforce in the eye and ask them, you know, the question that I think is sort of the te- tectonic question yeah. behind the whole distrust of NSA which is is there something incompatible about constitutional government under neutral principles and you know an organization whose former leader can stand up and quite cheerfully say giving rise to the great Alex Gibney film title we steal secrets yes. I, I don't know how many other agencies have been run by somebody who would use in his description of what the agency does a word that would normally impute criminal conduct and and i your audience seemed to appreciate that point too oh like, actually from I, the
1: giggles I, I could hear I, I, like, I, no, I, think, I think they got it
2: i think the, the the speech was very warmly received um and it was not in any sense a criticism of them because i don't i i look I believe in the intelligence community and but I do think we have this this it was a Constitution Day speech, so I'm supposed to be talking about the Constitution. And there is this you know, question, we don't, they do all kinds of things that normal people are not allowed to do. And even unlike the military, which does all kinds of things that normal people aren't allowed to do, we don't arrest people for being part of foreign militaries. But if you do to the NSA what the NSA does to some other uh, you know, country, they you well, know, we'll arrest you and prosecute you. We don't we don't treat Edward Snowden the same way that we treat, you know, the Chinese Edward Snowden. Right. And so I, I think there there's a real question there that that gets more pointed as time goes on and and they interact with more and more of our lives through more and more devices. You know, what is the relationship between routine intelligence work and and constitutional government
1: yeah well it's a great speech i recommend everyone go listen Thank to it a lot the podcast I was it was ben's a very good extemporaneous speaker but this was
2: i thought one of the more thoughtful and um yeah really just really enjoyable well i'm pleased after you read after you listen to it read uh kevin gustola's uh uh criticisms of it because uh i i um, thought they were uh, great fun
1: yeah, okay. And people who, by the way, who
2: don't I'm agree joking with you. Yeah, of course you are. Of course you are.
1: And if you don't agree with Ben on these issues, you should still listen to the speech, I think. Uh, I'm also joined again by super guest star, Jen Daskell, who was such a hit last week on the show that we asked her back again. Hello, Jen. It's fun to be back. Yeah, this is great. It's a, it's a twofer. Um, okay. So this week, lots to chew on, including a walking stick that Ben brought in today. We're going to get to that later in object lessons and some kind of a baby toy.
2: A rattle. A rattle? That's an important point. Oh, it's a rattle. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is the first audible object, uh, object lesson. lesson we've okay. ever had. <laughs> Good <Nice>. for podcasting.
1: <laughs> Plus, we're going to talk about police use of surveillance technology becoming an issue in a case in Florida with potentially wider implications. The Justice Department says it will use the material support to terrorism law to go after people who proliferate ISIS social media propaganda. And Ben is testifying before the House Armed Services Committee week this week on... The new authorization of military force against ISIS. Our very own Ben, taking the oath informing the debate, writing law. (laughs) Be afraid.
2: Be very afraid. afraid.
1: Okay, let's start with our wordplay segment. Um, Jen, we're going to go to you first. The Washington Post reported this week on the trial of a Florida man, uh, Tadre McKenzie, prosecuted for robbery in what appeared to be an open and shut case, but prior to the trial, his defense team found out that investigators had used a secret surveillance tool, sometimes known as a stingray, raising all kinds of thorny issues about privacy and evidence. So fill us in.
0: Sure. So first, let's just talk about what these stingrays are. Um, so they gather cell phone signals to pinpoint a suspect's location. But we're not talking about cell site location data. They're, they're basically a simulated cell phone tower. Um, and they force, they effectively force phones that are in their vicinity to register with it. And they work in different ways. Some just collect the metadata off the phone. Some um, can tell... When and where the phone has connect- connected with other cell phone um, towers. Um, sometimes they can force power on it full force to force the phone to drain. Which, since my battery is always draining from my phone, I'm now wondering if there's a stingray <laughs> attached to right. my phone. Good question. And um, and they can interrupt cellular service as well. So in this case, um, the the defendant was presumably. It appears as if the defendant, his precise location was determined using this. Stingray device. Um, So officers were able to determine exactly where he was at a particular time when they went to arrest him. And that came out during the course of discovery. And the judge was concerned about this. So the judge ordered a hearing and they ordered the government to produce the device, which can apparently either be the the size of basically a briefcase or something that's handheld. So they vary in size and they they vary in how they actually work. Um, And the government has claimed that it can't do this, that this was essentially Secretive that they don't want to disclose the, the device the itself. De- the device itself. I mean, which
1: you can buy
2: online, by the way, right? I mean, right. Yeah.
0: Um, and so, rather, maybe, f- maybe
2: rational security needs to buy a Stingray as I, an object lesson. I'd right. be all for it.
0: So, so the government objected. The judge said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you have to, you have to show the defendant's counsel, the defendant, what actually you use, so they can cross-examine you and figure out how this actually operated." And so two days before the government was supposed to do this, they offered a deal to the defendant who was given six months um, and probation on a minimum armed robbery uh, offense that would have had a minimum of four years. Defense counsel says, I don't, I don't practice in this jurisdiction, so I don't know, but the defense counsel says that they've never heard of a deal like this, that this mm. was an, un, an incredibly unusual deal. Mm. But more importantly, these devices um, are um, supposedly being used, they've been bought by over f- for approximately 48 municipality, local and state police officers in 20 states, including the District of Columbia. Um, and they're being used without any sort of regulation or oversight, or certainly not a whole lot. Um, often, there's been instances where judges have reportedly authorized their use without even realizing what yeah. they're doing. And so it raises real questions about, obviously, privacy and law enforcement, and um, it's, these devices don't just pick up, they, can't, they don't operate by just targeting the specific suspect. They pick up whatever they're picking up, whether yeah, the metadata the area, or from right. all of the phones in the area. Hmm. Now, the government, at least in this case, says they're not looking for content. They weren't using it for content purposes. It's not obvious to me, though, that it couldn't, or something analogous to this, couldn't be used to also gather content. And they claim that they're also throwing out all the other information that's not relevant to their investigation. Interesting. Um, but so it's, it certainly raises some issues.
1: So, it, so the issue here with the government not wanting to Put the device out there. Is that they were afraid that it would add that the defense would ask more questions about how they use them in other cases?
0: No, I don't think that's it because that would that would be irrelevant to the case. But something about there's something about the device that the government doesn't want known. Something about the way it operates that Uh. would be apparent or decipherable by actually looking at the device that for whatever reason the government didn't want disclosed.
1: Chris Segoyan has actually written a fair amount about this, about the use of stingrays. And in in Washington, it also raises a question, too, of foreign intelligence agencies using these devices to scoop up uh, cell phone communications, you know, if you were a Chinese. Or individuals. Or individuals, yeah. If you wanted to go buy a stingray and park it outside of the offices at Brookings, and just pointed at the building, you could effectively collect all of this information. I mean, it makes, and the prices on them are, I mean, it makes large-scale eavesdropping that was once the domain of law enforcement trivial, and pretty much anyone could do
2: it. And and by the way, you know, the same is true of Wi-Fi. You know, people do all kinds of sensitive work on unencrypted Wi-Fi networks, um, and as we once uh showed in Mm -hmm. the lawfare drone smackdown those are entirely capturable i mean if you go sit in a starbucks and and you know wanna wanna have a sense of you know operate a signals intelligence operation against the people sitting around you that is a very doable thing and so you know i i it's a it's a The stingray attracts a lot of attention because it's, you know, it's the coercive power of law enforcement and it, you know, rubs up against Fourth Amendment uh, restrictions. But I actually think focusing narrowly on the stingray as, as, you know, Chris, for example, sometimes does can, can miss the sort of larger picture, which is what you just said, Shane, that, that, you know, this is, do-it-yourself signals intelligence yeah. and it's really available to a lot of people
1: so is the Jenny is the, is, the, is, the, is the question or is the concern here that they illegally monitored his communications that they are grabbing up stuff they don't need like what is the sort of the big privacy so, Tallahassee
0: says that they're not using this to to gather communications at all they're using it for metadata um, so it's I they, and they claim it's not even clear to me that they have the technology to gather. Communications, although it appears that others may. Yeah. Um. So, but I think the concern is is one operating this without a warrant. So does this require a warrant? This is this interestingly came out the same week that the Eleventh Circuit is hearing en banc, an en an unbank case regarding whether or not you need a warrant to get cell cell tower location data, um, pr- potentially creating a split between the Eleventh Circuit and the Fifth Circuit. Um, The Fifth Circuit says no. Um, The Florida Supreme Court said yes, at least for real-time data. And Now the Eleventh Circuit en banc is considering the issue as well. So it's part and parcel of a whole host of issues about when and in what circumstances law enforcement needs a warrant to gather information that is to some degree publicly available if you think these types of devices or ways to get this information is potentially um, publicly available. Cell site location data is not publicly available because they're getting it from the cell so computer. does this
1: set up a potential Supreme Court hearing in which they would decide whether metadata is covered by the Fourth Amendment?
0: So to, I mean, what, I do think that at least the cell site location data issue is eventually headed up to the Supreme Court. Um, it's there's a Fifth Circuit case now. There's an Eleventh Circuit case. There's a case that's that was heard in the Fourth Circuit in December that there'll be a ruling on eventually. Um, there's uh, some dicta in the third, third Circuit. So there's a whole host of reasons why that issue might. Um, go up to the Supreme Court, and we'll deal with questions about metadata and privacy and mosaic theories of privacy, and we'll raise interesting questions. But what's particularly interesting about the Stingray case, or what I think the Stingray case highlights, is how much of this falls under the radar, and in some sense the the courts are a step behind. So they're talking about cell tower location data, which is actually not nearly as accurate as this Stingray the information that's collected to the Stingray, which isn't anywhere close to working its way up the courts. And in fact, in Tallahassee, the government avoided the possibility that it would work its way up the courts by offering a plea deal so the case gets dismissed and, Mm -hmm. and there's no appeal to be heard. So I think... One of the things that's so interesting about this and that warrants further consideration by legislators because it's not going to be heard by the court is how you start thinking about regulating this new technology if if we think that there's concerns here.
2: I mean, I think it eventually will be heard because not every police department is going to make the judgment that Tallahassee made, which is, hey, cut this guy a deal and, you know, save our machine. Some police department somewhere is going to say, you know, Damn it, Smith v. Maryland said, you know, metadata is just metadata. It's not content. It's not protected by the Fourth Amendment. Therefore, this isn't a search. Um, And under existing precedent, they will not be wrong to uh, make that argument. And so then the question is, uh, will do courts, and specifically the Supreme Court, still regard the... uh, you know, 1970s-era cases as good law in this space. Um, and, I, and I do think one way or another, not everybody will be as conservative as Tallahassee was in, um, in, in dismissing this and, or in pleading it out on generous terms. In some cases, you're going to have police departments who want to establish the precedent that, you know, stingrays are very nice and, and they should be encouraged.
0: No, and, and I agree with that. I guess the point I was trying to make is that there's, there's this lag between the use of the technology and when these cases heard, are heard by the Supreme Court. And depending on how the Supreme Court rules and what kinds of principles are set, you're, we're always going to have this because the technology is evolving so rapidly and the use of these new technologies kind of happen under the radar screen until a case like this pops up, that you have this lag time before anybody is even aware of what's actually going on.
1: Okay, so I'll go next. My wordplay is a conversation that John Carlin, the Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the Justice Department, had this week with Peter Bergen of New America, the think tank here in Washington, where, full disclosure, I'm a fellow. Uh, at a conference here, Peter asked John whether or not the Justice Department would consider prosecuting people who, in Peter's words, helped proliferate ISIS's social media. So it's propaganda, the beheading videos the recruitment strategy, I think drawing a distinction between people who just sort of tweet about ISIS, obviously, versus people who are kind of in league with ISIS to help run its social media operation. And John Carlin said yes, uh, that the Justice Department would prosecute those people um, and that it would probably do so using uh, the law against uh, offering material support to a terrorist group. And He said that you could do this by saying that the offer of technical expertise in the form of helping ISIS tweet and post these messages would constitute uh, material support. Um, A very controversial idea, I think. Uh, I am not a lawyer. Uh, But it struck me as that there is, and and you guys kind of weigh in on this, but, you know, A, there is the obvious question of where is the line between free speech and material support? and it seems to me that that slope is really slippery when you're talking about the world of social media uh, you know there have even been we've seen this come up when the beheading videos get posted and you know twitter will shut down accounts of people who are just retweeting news articles about them sometimes it's it's not sometimes it's it's, it's not clear where they are even drawing the line of what is constituting sort of free speech and talking about the event versus somehow encouraging it or spreading it around um, but there is at least one case that you guys can inform us more about where someone was prosecuted under the material support law for translating jihadist texts uh, and making videos available online. That would seem to be the most instructive case here. Ben, maybe you want to talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, so there's... I mean I think there's really two important cases here and and let me say this is an issue where I have very mixed feelings and I I think it's very easy to define the polar cases and it's very hard to figure out where the line between the two cases is. So let's let's take the polar cases. Um one is a a blogger or Twitter user who you know just loves ISIS and she expresses all kinds of pro-ISIS views that happen to coincide with ISIS's own self-representations. This is clearly constitutionally protected, as ugly as it may be, and the if, if what Carlin is saying is that he means to prosecute those people, then it's an abominable thing for a US prosecutor to say, and I don't actually believe that that's what he was trying to say, though it certainly is the way uh, for example, Glenn Greenwald tweeted about your article about it, and, you know, his words may be amenable to that interpretation, but I don't believe it was what he was, what, what, what he, if he were sitting here, and I, for the record, I haven't talked to him about it, um, would say he was saying. I think what he was saying, or trying to say, is two things. One is that the Supreme Court, in a case called Humanitarian Law Project, upheld the material support ban against um a constitutional first amendment challenge on grounds that you're allowed to say whatever you want but you're not allowed to give aid to these proscribed organizations and those aid that aid can under certain circumstances take the form of activity that might otherwise be protected speech if for example you're tweeting rah ra isis At the behest of ISIS, you're you're doing work on their behalf. Think about uh, Osama bin Laden's propaganda guy, al-Balul, who's at Guantanamo uh, and was, you know, actually convicted in a military commission only to then set off a long saga, but that's a different story. Al-Balul made videos for bin Laden. Now, normally making videos is protected speech, but if you do it as part of the, as a sort of, arm of, you know, the propaganda arm of Al-Qaeda, that is, you know, probably a criminal conspiracy. But isn't also, things.
1: I mean, not to cut you off, but isn't Balul also, I mean, is that, is that maybe stretching it too much in that Balul is in league with bin Laden, he knows these people. What about, you know, Perfect. the guy that, in London? Well,
2: that, you know, there's our other polar case, okay. right? So it is possible to be part of the Al-Qaeda organization and be its media arm, right? And I don't think anybody, except the most extreme First Amendment absolutists, would argue that that person is immune from prosecution because the thing that he did on behalf of the organization involved speech. So then the question, and here I got to tell you, I don't really know what the answer is. As you move from one pole toward the other, where is the exact line that it is proper to impute criminality to activity that would be otherwise First Amendment protected. The only case we really have on the subject that I know anything about is this case of, uh, of this, this guy, Tariq Mahana, who was prosecuted in Massachusetts for, largely, for media operations he did on behalf of, I believe it was AQAP, but yeah. maybe it was some other al-Qaeda. Well, I think it was,
1: well, he tried to go to, he went to Yemen to try and hook up with al-Qaeda in Iraq. Okay. he failed.
2: Right. Yeah. And so, and look, this case is enormously controversial, um, and we hosted on Lawfare a, a quite extensive debate about it between Peter Margulies and David Cole about whether this was, in fact, a legitimate prosecution or not. And I think, honestly, both of them made extremely strong points, and I came away quite torn about it. Um, so I think, you know, if what – I read what Carlin was saying as we mean to do more Tarek Mahana cases. Yeah. And that is a a, a, a forward-leaning and potentially uh, troubling suggestion, but not an obviously improper one.
1: Yeah, I think it's also worth noting, I don't think John intended to make news in this, in, in, in this conference. I don't system. know. Where did
2: I go wrong in all that, Jen?
0: Well, I mean, just – just on the con- just one piece on the constitutional analysis. So the Constitution. So so I think you're right as a matter of principle. The Constitution doesn't won't even apply if we're talking about a non-citizen overseas. So the right. First Amendment had, provides no protections in those situations. So at least that piece of it falls out. That the First Amendment constitutional protections fall. You know the the government doesn't have to worry about them. I I mean I. I think the use of the word proliferation, if that is... Well,
1: it was Peter's question. That's how he kind of framed it. And I think John was saying, you know, the people helping deeper in the operation as opposed to just, you know, tweeting on Facebook, go ISIS. But
0: Right. I mean, I think it would be... It's important to put clear parameters on what's meant here because there is a real risk of bleed and talking about people who, I mean, what does it mean to tweet on behalf, when you're talking about an organization that operates to some extent through social media, what does it mean to tweet on behalf of? Obviously, they have, they have people who are supporters who are not necessarily part of ISIS around the world who will retweet their stuff. Is that proliferation of, of, of their ideology? Or
1: even like, I mean, I wonder too, I remember during the Boston Marathon bombing that people were listening to police scanners. And they were uh, – tw- and I did this too until the police basically begged everyone to stop. They were tweeting out locations of where the police were. And they wanted us to stop doing this because I think they were afraid of what if the bombers were like using Twitter to find out what – where to avoid. And so, I mean, the question then would be, you know, people who are tweeting about – you know, who are in the region who are tweeting about airstrikes that are about to happen, who see something happening could – could you almost sort of by trying to help ISIS out without actually being asked to and volunteering your services is that material support? I mean, in social media context, you're assisting them, you're aiding them, you're effectively helping with you know command and control to some degree. I mean, would that, that seems to be like this is like where the, like the whole it's like many slippery slopes right. that are running into each other. Right. No,
0: I think that's right, and I think it's um it's it's unfortunate that that John Carlin got kind of trapped in the answer, um, and, and didn't find a way out of directly answering the question because I think it raises, raises way more questions than it answers and, and the, the proof is in the pudding. So if, if it was a case, like if Anwar Alaki had been prosecuted for, for basically, um, all the propaganda that Anwar al was doing instead of killed with a drone strike I can't imagine that many people would have a problem with that but that's very different than what is potentially conjured up by the the word proliferation so I, I mean the proof, we'll have to see what happens yeah. but it's a it is a dangerous it's a dangerous path it's a tricky path to be to be going down
2: on the other hand one one word in Carlin's defense I do not think it is a terrible thing for the AAG for national security to remind people that under humanitarian law project there actually is room to prosecute people who really get in bed with you know with with designated foreign terrorist organizations on the propaganda side yeah. that there that there's a limit to the to the free speech principle that the Supreme Court has. You know, been pretty clear about and, and just Chief Justice Roberts' opinion, which is again, is very controversial, is also very clear. It's, it's actually an extremely well written, um, opinion and it really rejects the idea, uh, that, that, you know, in the case of HLP, that you can go to hang out with uh, the Kurdistan Uh, People's Party to help their non-lethal activities by teaching them about um, about the laws of war and you know that that's he says you know that's not okay and that's not protected by the First Amendment And, and I don't think it's a terrible thing to remind people that hey the law actually isn't quite as permissive as you might think. Here, in your sort of grade school civics way, right? Mm-hmm. Well,
0: I agree with that. But I, but even that is a, is a far co- cry from just so. The, the two issues in humanitarian law project was a group that was going to go do some training for the case and another group that was going to provide assistance in the form of teaching the group how to make appeals to the UN. And in both those cases, the courts, it was a it was a preemptive. They, they weren't being prosecuted. It was basically an attempt to get. Basically, by these by these plaintiffs, a uh, uh, declaratory judgment that what they wanted to do was going to be okay. And the Supreme Court said no, that that's acting in conjunction with these groups. The court did say if they were independently um, providing um, uh, advocacy to the UN on behalf of the group and they weren't working in conjunction, that would be okay. But the problem came when they were working in conjunction helping the group themselves do the advocacy to the UN. And so So that's that's a far cry from mere proliferation.
1: Right. Because, I mean, you could become sort of a self-styled, self-appointed ISIS propagandist by just taking the films and hosting them and keeping them from being shut down and promoting them all without ISIS ever, ever having asked you to do it.
2: Right. And I I think in, in that case, that's my first polar example where you're you're really a, an independent operator, and I, I think it would be very disturbing if the Justice Department's view was that they could prosecute those people. On the other hand, their allegation about Tariq Mahana was that he was taking direction from, you know, the organization. And so that, again, fits you into a somewhat different humanitarian law project category.
1: Yeah. And, the, and the last <clears throat> thing we'll say about this, the frustrating part about Mahana's case is that if I'm not mistaken, in the instructions to the jury at the trial, they were not told to try and distinguish between material support being the media work that he did versus the attempt to go over and try and join up with al-Qaeda, which failed. So we didn't reach, and the appeals court didn't reach either, sort of a clear understanding of breaking the two apart and saying, we're going to treat them in separate buckets. And so we don't really have, like, a great clear guidance from that decision on just the media part so okay ben your wordplay you are going to the hill you're taking the hill i am going to taking it to isis i'm
2: storming the hill now i'm going to take this uh i'm going to be very brief in my wordplay i am uh my my wordplay is my congressional testimony tomorrow um which um uh we will link to on the on the show page i guess and uh, one of the things I'm arguing in this testimony and um, is that the administration's draft AUMF um, raises a whole sl- slew of very legitimate criticisms, some from the right, mostly from the left, um, that a version, a draft um, AUMF that Jack Goldsmith, Bobby Chesney, who's also testifying tomorrow, Matt Waxman and I wrote back in November, Does not do not raise. And that what I don't go into in the testimony, but I want to flesh out here, is that right around the same time that we wrote this draft AUMF, which I'm going to try to breathe some life back into, because I think it's actually much better than, than the administration's draft AUMF. Right around the same time we wrote that, uh, a group of um, scholars associated with with the Just Security site, including Jen, uh, wrote a set of draft principles or principles for a draft AUMF. They didn't actually try to write the draft. So there's a little bit of asymmetry between the two proposals, which turned out by coincidence to come out the same day. But the principles are very similar to the principles reflected in the draft that we wrote. And my point is, and, and and I think if Jen and I had to sit down, based on those two documents, and write a draft AUMF that would get, that would address most of the legitimate criticisms that are being levied against the administration's proposal, I don't think it would take more than about 45 minutes. Um, and so my, my suggestion is, A, that the draft that we wrote back in November answers a lot of the problems that the administration's draft is now suffering on the Hill. And the evidence of that is that it largely complies with the principles that Jen and her colleagues laid out. And so I want to suggest that Congress should tear up the administration's draft and work off of the Just Security Principles and the Lawfare Draft instead. And the fact that you could get the list of people whose names are associated with one or the other of those documents reflects the actual diversity of political opinion that you could get behind this. The only thing you couldn't get behind it, I think, is A, Democrats who are very firmly committed to ground force restrictions, and B, Republicans who object in principle to sunsets because they um, they allegedly tie the hands of the president, which you know I, I actually don't believe. But um, so that's my pitch.
1: Jen, what do you think of that
2: pitch?
0: Amen. Um, I, and most importantly, I think, and we talked <coughs> about this a little bit last week, but where there's clear consensus is the idea that it makes no sense to talk about the ISIL map without also addressing the underlying 2001 AUMF, And that the sunsets, if there's going to be a sunset of the ISIL AUMAP, which there seems to be even in the administration's draft proposal consensus on, it becomes rendered totally meaningless if you don't also sunset the underlying 2001 right. AUMF. And so one of the most important areas of consensus, I think, is just on that, on the need to treat these two things together, to take this political moment, to defer to the next administration, to come in and to say to Congress, this is the war we're fighting in 2018 or whatever in sunsets, and, and here I am, I'm now the commander-in-chief, and these are the authorities I want, and have a public discussion and debate when there's a new administration, but have a real one and not just revert back in 2018 to what will then be an almost 18-year-old, 17-year-old 2001
2: AMF. Do you you agree specifically, I'm trying to be provocative here, do you agree specifically with um, my somewhat bombastic claim that reasonable people could resolve the differences between the principles you wrote and the draft that we wrote in a matter of minutes or a few hours, not, not days and not weeks?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I just—I don't—I think that the the areas where there's differences are, in my opinion, at least, the least important areas. And the areas where there's consensus are on the importance of treating the two AOMFs together, the need for some sort of supersession clause so you don't have the two thousand and one isolate AOMF basically being read as as dual competing right. authorities. The need to have a reasonable definition of associated forces, one that, in my opinion, ought to be consistent with the definition that at least has been publicly and publicly stated as a definition employed with respect to the 2001 AUMF. You do those three things, and I'm pretty happy with what you end up with. And um, the other things are are icing on the cake, but not essential ingredients.
2: So I will close this segment with one pessimistic observation, which is that it is a reflection on the dichotomy between the academic debate here and the political debate, that there is you have to go pretty far out to the right or pretty far to the left, in fact, very far to the left and pretty far to the right before you lose consensus on the points that Jen just mentioned. And the fact that, you know, the Just Security convened group and the Lawfare convened group came up in somewhat the same place about the major issues, and I agree with Jen, the more consensus the more important the issue the more consensus there is and the fact that this has no resonance on the Hill right where people are really fixated on are we tying the president's hands are we authorizing you know ground troop invasions of, of countries we haven't even thought of yet um, the fact that we don't that those are very different conversations than the conversations that happen when, when you know, the people who do this stuff for a living sit down and try to imagine what an appropriate AUMF should look like is probably not different from other policy areas where, you know, the political constraints are, are a mess on, you know, what economists say about the carbon tax, right? Um, but it is very frustrating, you know, when, when to me anyway, you know, that I I look around at my colleagues who disagree with me and I whom I disagree with about all kinds of things, and we can come to a pretty solid set of understandings about this, which was, by the way, not true three years ago. And I do think the academic and policy communities have have done a lot of work here and it has been good and solid and has achieved something like consensus, and that is you know not being reflected in the policy process. And so yeah, I mean I I, I find that, you know depressing a little bit. Yeah,
0: and I on this one I really lay the blame a lot at the Obama administration yeah. because what ha- because their proposal is so, in my opinion, just messed up in so many different areas and they're not push and why they didn't come forward with something that reflects this consensus makes no sense to me. Then the sticking point would be the ground troops issue and that would be it. But you wouldn't be having to fight on all these other issues about what should be the Without the administration coming in and supporting something that, to me, to my mind, is reasonable, you have the Democrats fighting against their own administration and the Republicans. You've you've divided rather than tried to reach consensus. And I, I think the administration, I don't know why they're doing it this way, but I think they're playing this completely wrong, and that if they had taken a step back and thought about the areas of consensus, they'd be left with a fight about ground troops, and that's about it.
1: Right as you said that, I think Obama's helicopter flew over. <laughs> by the way. Yeah,
2: I mean it's been circling us. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, as long as it doesn't launch a, a, a hellfire missile. at yeah. at, at silence at the, the bur- debate. Um, <clears throat> great discussion. I, this is going to
1: be fascinating to watch. And I don't know when Congress will actually vote on this, but or if effort. or if, yeah. but when they do, I think yeah, it's uh, they would do well to uh, listen to reasonable people who have been able to arrive at some near consensus which is something that the Congress of the United States appears unable to do on just about everything. So, um, let's go to object lesson. Jen, why don't you share your object?
0: Sure, I'll play it first. Okay. So, so in the midst of spending so much time thinking about war and fighting and conflict, I was trying to think about the kinds of things that draw people together. Particularly okay. there was an article a couple weeks ago about the State Department kind of re-upping its efforts to, to do counter-violent, countering violent extremism. And so the one thing I came up with is, was music. So music's the one thing that brings, that gets my kids. I thought you were gonna say rattles. Well, I thought rattles, you were gonna say yeah. babies. Babies, <laughs> babies <laughs> so bees. Too. But um, you know, so when we play music, the kids stop fighting. They listen. When we, when mm. I can get my kids singing, they're not fighting with each other. They're listening. You, I went to this most amazing music museum in Arizona when I was there in, over the holidays, and it's, it was. It was rooms and rooms full of instruments across generations from all over the world and people and little videos of people playing. And I just it makes you realise how universal a language music is. So when we're thinking about countering violent extremism, I think we somehow need to incorporate music with my plug for the day.
2: I'm down with that. I'm down with that. Yeah, this is
1: like uh, jazz in the cold war and you uh,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, bring up you
0: ending ISIL through musical diplomacy.
1: <laughs> yeah, although
2: they you know, they, they do execute musicians. That's true. And their songs are not catchy.
1: They're really not. Um, I'll do my object lesson next because Ben's is way cooler than mine. I wish I had with it. <clears throat> it's actually a photograph, which we'll put on the website. I keep bringing photographs, but next week, tune in, I'm bringing something tangible which y'all are going to love. But it's a photograph of um, a group of uh, German journalists who I uh, talked to this morning uh, who wanted to know about the state of U.S. media. And I sort of turned the tables around on them. And I said, well, tell me how the whole... NSA thing is playing out a year and a half on, and our Germans kind of over it. Um, And it was very interesting. You got the usual, uh, you know, the reason this was such an outrage is because we've had recent experience with this, the Stasi, et cetera. But to a person, they were really emphatic on this point, and they underscored it in a way that I hadn't really appreciated. They said, it'll seem very strange to you, but you have to understand, given how popular Obama is in Germany, or was... And given how close the German people feel and how tight the security relationship has always felt with the United States, this really felt like a betrayal, like like, like someone cheating on you. And I don't think I'd quite appreciate it. They were really not, I mean, more so than the references to the Stasi, the one that they really keyed in on was this was seen as a betrayal by our friend, that friends don't do this to each other. And I guess I'd always sort of appreciated that on the political level, but the degree to which this seems like there was great social frustration over this too, uh, that it was was meaningful to German people is something I don't think I'd quite appreciate at that deep level. So that was an interesting lesson for me.
2: So it's really um, it's really interesting that you say that because I I've, I've uh, at at my NSA speech told this story about being in in Germany and and you know defending the NSA and feeling like I should be there in, you know, cowboy boots and a big 10-gallon hat. Um, And giving this message, which, you know, was, uh, you know, the theme of the speech was just grow up. Um, You know, this isn't a romance. It's not, you know, uh, it's not friendship. It's not, uh, it's interstate politics. And the, I expected people to be really offended by this when I said it. And, And actually people weren't. Um, They, uh, the Germans, I thought, appreciated actually being talked to without a pretense that there was, you know, that there was some underlying um, need to sort of pat them on the back and reassure them. And the next day, actually, the headline in one of the major German newspapers, was, you know, Brookings Scholar to Germany just grow up. Um, <laughs> I didn't and, know that. Uh, you know, it was great fun. Um, and, um, they
1: draw a cowboy hat on you.
2: So, um,
1: <laughs> um, okay, Ben, what's your object?
2: So, when I testify tomorrow, I am, I think, maybe the first person uh, to testify in a long, at least in a long time, in front of the ha- House Armed Services Committee who will be uh, carrying a staff <laughs> when, when he does. And, um, a wooden staff. A wooden staff. Uh, it's not quite a quarter staff, but it's almost a quarter staff. They're going to let you take and, that in the building. Uh, they're going to have to, because the reason I'm going to be doing this is because I am, uh, have badly injured my calf muscle, um, and uh, the result is I have a new relationship with the staff. So <laughs> I, I've, I've, I'm a martial arts practitioner, and one of the things I've spent a lot of time doing in Aikido is training in use of the staff as a weapon. And the staff the staff Again, say that you think they're, they're gonna go. let okay. you okay. in the okay. just, 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 um, just, just. It's okay. Just, it's just, just, it's bear, just a weapon. Just bear with me on this. So I I you know, the the staff, which in Japanese is called a joe, um or depending on the width of it, sometimes called a bow, is a very is a very unusual weapon because it's it's one of the very few weapons that's completely symmetrical. It has no front and back, uh it has no bladed side and unbladed side. Um it's, it, and therefore it is a kind of pure weapon for certain types of training, as well as very, uh, very effective for, uh, all kinds of, all <laughs> kinds of combat situations. So I've always thought of the staff as reflecting one kind of security, as in, this is a weapon I'm trained to use. And, but now, in the last three days, I have come to appreciate a completely different side of the staff which is providing a different form of security, which is I'm leaning on it to prevent myself from falling over. And so I keep thinking of myself as sort of the opposite of Gandalf, right? Gandalf gets in the room in the two towers by saying, well, you wouldn't separate an old man from his walking stick. And um, it turns out that when he gets in the room, the walking stick is, is a uh, a, a hugely powerful weapon, and I feel like exactly the opposite. I've been trained on, with with a weapon, and all of a sudden it's become a walking stick. And these are two completely different uh, visions of security that are all reflected in uh, this rather beautifully carved uh, object. Where's it from? Uh, Snyder's
1: It's beautiful. There's um, no way
2: they're letting you take that in. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, how about this, Shane? If 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 if, it, if you see, uh, me with uh-huh. a walking stick, it, I'll I'll have a picture taken. Okay. with the stick in the hearing room. Got it. That'll Just be on the show. Don't this
0: podcast until after you. Right,
2: and like limp a little extra. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I I the limp is legit. Yeah, <laughs> like a.
1: Okay, that's it for this week's show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to this show and all of our other great podcasts at spaghettionthewallproductions.com. You will also find a link to our newest podcast called Ask a Scientist, in which my friend, uh, former journalist Dave McGlinchey, sits down with scientists on relevant issues of the day in a great one-on-one interview format. Uh, up now, he has a great interview about the science of concussions with the director of the traumatic brain injury at the Georgetown at Georgetown University, at uh, a laboratory there. It's great stuff. Uh, you can follow Rational Security on Twitter at RATL Security. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes and Stitcher. And wherever you download podcasts, please when you're there, leave a rating. That is actually the best way to spread the word to others who have not yet found out about the podcast. The editor of Rational Security is Jen Howell. Our music is performed by John Carlin and his Bayou Jug Band. No. (laughs) No. Maybe next week. Our music is performed, as always, by the enigmatic Snowden-like Sophia Yan, who is sharing her gifts with the world direct from Hong Kong. On behalf of Ben Wittis and Jen Daskal, I'm Shane Harris, and we will see you next week.